Well, brothers and sisters, it's a joy to be with you uh, once again. Uh, for any who are new, I'm uh, Ben Bullard. I'm, uh, I serve as one of the pastors at Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, we pray for you all. We are thankful uh, for your fellowship in the gospel. Uh, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, and while you're turning there, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us. We thank you that you have given your Son. and We thank you that you have given us your Word. And God, we pray that now as we open up your Word to study it, that you, through your Spirit, would give us illumination, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us hope and joy and peace in believing, that you would give us wisdom uh, to know how we are to live and grace to carry that out. God, be with me now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, death is one of the grim and painful realities of life. Uh, some have tried to come up with happier ways to talk about it, uh, such as calling it part of the circle of life, uh, or perhaps referring to something like a funeral as a celebration of life. But the reality is, uh, these are hollow, empty words when we face death ourselves, uh, or when we feel the, the deep grief uh, of losing a loved one. Uh, we, we all know deep down that this just isn't the way it's supposed to be. Others uh, deal with this reality of death by just trying to avoid thinking about it. Uh, these are those that just try to stay in the house of mirth rather than that of mourning. Uh, that say, let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Uh, and of course, we live in a society that enables us to largely separate ourselves from the reality of death. No longer do we ourselves you know, kill the food that we're going to eat. Uh, it is rare today that, that people would die in our home. Uh, many people, they, they die in nursing homes or hospitals. Uh, and rarely today do we even see the open casket at a funeral. Uh, and so death for us is often more like a newsflash. It, it's something we hear about, but it's not something that we see, touch, and feel. But of course, trying to distance ourselves from an uncomfortable reality doesn't make that reality any less real. Still others uh, devote themselves to health regimens and special diets and uh, exercise and seek to do everything that they can to stave off death and prolong life. But again, this just delays the inevitable. Uh, and how often we read of even the healthiest of people who suddenly come down with cancer uh, or die in a traffic accident. And then finally, there are those who uh, approach death by uh, sort of defiantly shaking their fist at it, uh, you know, saying that uh, they won't fear it, uh, but rather that they will face it on their own terms and in their own way. Uh, we see this in the rise of euthanasia. Uh, those who say that, that they will choose to die with dignity rather than withering away with a terminal disease. Uh, and of course, we live in a society that champions freedom and personal autonomy, so it's unsurprising that some would advocate euthanasia as a way to express one's right to choose when and how they die. But of course, the sad irony of this is that death itself is the ultimate declaration that we are not universally free and we are not finally autonomous. I mean, death is that very thing that strips away all of our rights and freedoms that we enjoy in this life and which seals our eternal destiny. Death, it's like it draws back the curtain to reveal that every proud and lofty claim of human autonomy is nothing but a pretentious illusion thinly masking the reality of human finitude and frailty. Because you see, in reality, as the Bible says, 
Death is the ultimate declaration of our accountability to God. We're not autonomous. We are accountable. And death is not only painful because it's not the way things are supposed to be, but death is fearful. Because death is like a blaring siren proclaiming our guilt. Saying, fallen, 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 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Death is the unnatural consequence of sin. And yet ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death has reigned universal over mankind. However, today we come to one striking exception to that rule. uh, Because we will be considering uh, a man who did not die. Uh, We will be looking at the life and ministry of Elijah, and specifically his translation to heaven. Uh, And this is part three of of a three-part series on the life of Elijah. Uh, It has been quite a while since I preached part one and then part two, so the first thing I'd like to do is review where we've been, and then after we catch up, we will dive into the story here in 2 Kings chapter one. Uh, Now, our study in the life of Elijah began uh, back in 1 Kings chapters 17 and 18. Uh, And that portion of scripture uh, covered a three and a half year period uh, in the life of Elijah from the day that he pronounces a drought uh, to three and a half years later when God sent rain. Uh, And we observe that in that period, there is this whole plethora of miracles that take place. Uh, One of us is, of course, the drought itself. Uh, This was an act of judgment upon Ahab, Jezebel, and the nation of Israel because they had turned from Yahweh and began serving the storm god Baal instead. And so for three and a half years, God sent no rain or dew on the land. Uh, And during this drought, Elijah first, he went uh, by this brook uh, where God sent him and he was fed uh, by ravens that God sent to provide for him, but then the brook dries up and God tells him to get up and go to the land of Zarephath, which was in fact uh, Jezebel's home territory. This is outside of Israel. And he goes there and he finds a widow. And this widow and her son are about to starve to death. Uh, They have this one little jar of flour and this one little jug of oil and there's enough for like one more meal and then they have no more food. The drought has hit hard. And Elijah says, By the word of the Lord, give your last meal to me, and God will provide for you. And amazingly, she believes, and she gives this food to Elijah, and for the next years, this one little jar of flour and jug of oil doesn't run out. And God provides day by day for the widow, her son, and Elijah. Then something else happens. The widow, her son, gets sick at some point in this period, and he dies. And then Elijah Uh, goes and prays for him three times, and he is raised back to life. Uh, And then after this, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and he's called to go back to Israel, and he comes and he appears before Ahab, and the nation is gathered, and there is this great showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal, where they call out to Baal to send down fire from heaven, and Baal is silent and powerless, And then Elijah comes forward and he calls on the name of the Lord and Yahweh is the God who answers by fire. And fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. Now, one of the things that we observed as we went through these stories is that the great theme there is not really the miracles themselves, but rather the word of Yahweh. Uh, I titled that message, Yahweh's Word and Baal's Silence. And we noticed that the function of the miracles was not to motivate the people to seek more miracles. It's so that the people would say, along with the woman of Zarephath, now I know that you, Elijah, are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. You see, the miracles were given to reveal that Yahweh is the one true God And that his word should therefore be trusted and obeyed. 
And as we thought about this function of miracles, um, I pointed out to you that there are actually three periods in the Bible where we see these special outpourings of miracles in particular. Uh, The first is in around 1500 BC during the time of the Exodus with Moses and then Joshua. Uh, The second is the period of around 800 BC in the life of Elijah and then Elisha. And then the third is the period from around 30 to 60 AD in the life of Jesus and his apostles. Um, And interestingly, as we discussed last time, there is this rough correspondence between these three periods um, and the writing of the the three major sections of the Bible, the Law, the Prophets, and the New Testament. And so it seems that in the wisdom of God, He specially orchestrated the outpourings of miracles during these times to validate and confirm His written Word. And so in other words, the, the miracles we read about in Scripture are not there so that we can say, okay, God, when I see a miracle like that, then I will believe in You. No. These miracles are there to confirm God's written word so that we may hear this word and believe this word and have life in Jesus' name. So that was part one. Now in part two, we looked at 1 Kings chapter 19 and we continue to see this emphasis on Yahweh's word. Because perhaps surprisingly, after all the miracles that Elijah saw, and right after Elijah's great triumph on Mount Carmel in which he stood alone, against a king, against a nation, and against 400 prophets of Baal, Elijah receives a threat from a single woman, Jezebel. And he turns and he flees out into the wilderness and he spirals into such deep depression that he lays down under a broom tree and prays that he might die. And so somehow, the very man who had seen such amazing displays of God's miraculous power, who in fact had been the very instrument through which God did these miracles, this same man is the one who finds himself crying out, God, where are you? God, why are you letting everything spin out of control? And then it is out of this that God comes to him to meet with him on the mountain. This is Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai in the cleft of the rock, right? Just like Moses many years before. And Elijah's there in the cleft and and there's this great rushing wind so strong that rocks are being split. But then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then there's this mighty earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there's this raging fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then there's a low whisper, a still small voice. And Elijah recognizes that this is Yahweh speaking to him. So God doesn't reveal himself to Elijah through the outwardly spectacular or the stunningly miraculous, but through his word in a whisper. And God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, basically saying, have you not noticed, God, that everything is falling apart? And God says to him, go. Anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to be a prophet in your place. And God basically says, I will use them to bring judgment on my enemies. And by the way, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. And so in other words, what God is doing here is he's showing Elijah that he doesn't just work through the outwardly spectacular and miraculous. He's also the God who works and reveals himself in the quiet of a still small voice. I mean, God doesn't just show up when a miracle happens. He's also working providentially through all the ordinary details of life. He's telling Elijah, look, I already have a plan for who the next king of every nation is going to be. I already have a plan for who will be prophet in your place. I already have a plan for how I will bring about judgment on all the wicked people who are doing wicked things in the world. And God already has a plan for how he will save each and every one of his people. He has reserved his 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. 
And so, friends, the point is that God is every bit as near, every bit as active, and every bit as faithful, whether you can see Him or hear Him or feel Him or not. And the question is not, where's God? The question is, where are you? Are you trusting God and walking in His will, or are you running from where God would have you to be? And that's why God says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it's why he says, go, go and be faithful to what I've called you to do. And the wonderful thing here is that this simple word of Yahweh pulls Elijah up out of depression and reestablishes him as a faithful prophet of the Lord. And then after this, Elijah goes obediently and he calls Elisha to be his disciple. And Elisha begins following him. Uh, And then... Uh, in the, the rest of the book of 1 Kings, that's chapter 20 through 22, uh, we have the account of the remainder of King Ahab's life. And it's the sad tale of a man who received incredible mercy and patience from God, yet was utterly consumed by wickedness and sin. And he dies a shameful death as a coward in disguise on the battlefield. Elijah in these chapters is only mentioned once. Uh, when he comes to pronounce judgment on Ahab for murdering Naboth and stealing his vineyard. And so, as we now turn to 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, Ahab is dead, and it's his son Ahaziah who is now king in Israel. And we find that Elijah remains an outcast in exile from the courts of Israel. And as I implied at the beginning of this sermon, the theme in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 is that of death. And we see first the death of an ungodly king, and then we see the deliverance from death of God's prophet. So, uh, let's look now at 1 Kings chapter 1, and our first point in the sermon is this. Number one, there is no hope in death apart from Yahweh. There's no hope in death apart from Yahweh. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So the king somehow falls through either a railing or the floor itself, and he's injured. And whether it got infected or the injury is just that bad, he is lying sick, and it's serious enough that he's not sure if he's going to make it. And so, as probably any of our thoughts would, his thoughts drift to spiritual things. And he sends messengers to inquire of his god, Beelzebub. Now, on one hand, it is unsurprising that he he would pursue the the same God as his father had. Uh, But on the other hand, it is shocking that the very king of Israel, a member of the covenant people of Yahweh, the people who had been redeemed, and at that, the leader of this people, who is supposed to be the one leading others to follow Yahweh, that he is the very one who is turning aside to turn to the God of Ekron, to turn to a foreign deity. I mean, this is nothing less than spiritual adultery against God. And so God sends Elijah to pronounce judgment upon him because of this. And so in verse 3, it continues, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to Samaria and, oh, sorry, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So, Elijah went. So Elijah goes and he intercepts these messengers of the king who are going to Ekron to inquire of Beelzebub, and Apparently, these messengers are so impressed with what Elijah says, perhaps they're shocked by how this man would know 
the private business of the king, that they actually turn around and go back to the king. And it says in verse 5, the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, at this point, you imagine if, if you're Ahaziah. You know, here you've just sent men on this sort of secret, private business, and some man shows up and turns around and says, is this because you think there's no God in Israel that you are sending for Baalzebub? You think he would be cut to the heart. You think he would change. I mean, this would be like if, you know, you and just the secret of your own head are thinking, I'm going to go to the store and I, I think I can steal something. And you're kind of walking there and all of a sudden some guy in the street just looks at you and says, you shall not steal. I mean, it would, it would, it would be striking. And yet we see something of the hardness of Ahaziah's heart because he doesn't respond in any kind of repentance, showing any kind of fear or trembling. Instead, he says in verse 7, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Right? This is the distinctive garb of Elijah. And Ahaziah recognizes that and he says, and he said, is Elijah the Tishbite? And then in verse 9, it says, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. And this prideful, hard-hearted king responds to this Warning with, I'm going to go arrest the guy. That's how he responds. And so this captain of 50 men with his 50, turns out, is arrogant, just like the king. And verse 9 says, the, the captain goes up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. And notice the irony of what he says. He calls him a man of God. And then he asserts the authority of the king as if this man of God should bow to the authority of the king as he's here with his show of force with 50 men saying, or else. Well, Elijah responds to this arrogance in the following way. It says in verse 10, but Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So in a shocking display of the judgment of God, fire comes down and burns these men to death. Well, then news of this gets back to the king and even more surprisingly, his hardness of heart is so strong that instead of repenting now, he says, well, I'm going to send another captain of 50. And so verse 11, again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And this captain is even more arrogant than the first because he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And then a third time, verse 13, again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. So the first man who has shown a shred of humility or common sense, and he says, O man of God, Please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah rose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, 
You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so God shows mercy to this third captain of 50 who humbles himself. Uh, and, and it seems it was God's desire that Elijah would go and deliver this message of judgment face to face with the king. And God does protect Elijah. Nothing happens to him. And we don't know how the king responded, but we do know this. According to verse 17, this king, Ahaziah, died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Now, there's a lot of details and things that we could zoom in on, but the basic point of this passage is that Baal is utterly powerless to deliver anyone from death or even to say whether or not someone will live. As Yahweh tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 29, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now for many of us, it may be easy to read that and think, Amen. You know, I, I've never been tempted to worship Baal. Of course, Yahweh is the true God. But what about other idols? You know, what about money? What about possessions? What about comfort or family or friends or relationships or success or career, achievements, health and fitness? You know, our hearts are idol factories that, that can make idols out of anything. And, and the the point of this passage is this, if we give ourselves to idols while we live, we will have nothing but idols to turn to on our deathbed. And they are all powerless to deliver from death. Every other idol we could possibly hope in, we could possibly turn to, it is every bit as impotent when we're lying there on our deathbed as Ahaziah trying to send messengers off to Baal. Because there is no hope in death apart from Yahweh. And so when we feel tempted to idols, let's, let's look at them in light of the reality. We are dying people in a, in a world that is under the reign of death. What good will this idol be when I am facing death when I'm on my deathbed. And that should help us see these idols for what they really are. There is no hope in death apart from Yahweh. Well, this brings us to point number two, which is that a life well-lived prepares for death. A life well-lived prepares for death. And we see this in the life of Elijah, who unlike this idolatrous king Ahaziah, has been serving the Lord and preparing for his own departure. Uh, and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, uh, we get a glimpse of what Elijah does on what he knows to be his final day on earth. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. 
Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. So this chronicles for us something like a 20-mile journey in a southeastern direction from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and finally across the Jordan River uh, to outside the promised land. And this crossing of the river is right near where Joshua had one day brought the people of Israel into the promised land. And interestingly, at each place, Elijah encourages Elisha to stay behind, but Elisha refuses. And it seems like what this is is a test. Because Elisha has been called to be Elijah's disciple, to follow him wherever he goes. And it seems like the question is, Elisha, will you be faithful all the way to the end? It's been a long journey. You could rest. It's, you're tired. Are you going to be faithful? And Elisha's response is very clear. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so we see that Elisha is, in fact, prepared to be Elijah's successor and the prophetic leader in Israel. Now, the other interesting thing is that at both Bethel and Jericho, Elijah and Elisha are met by these sons of the prophets. Uh, and so, who are these men? Um, well, remember, Jezebel had been hunting down and killing the prophets, um, and, and many commentators think that who these sons of the prophets are is, is there something akin to Elijah's seminary students. Uh, they, they seem to be men that Elijah had been chiefly responsible for helping to train up so they would know the law of God and they could go out and preach the word of God to the people. Uh, and so it actually, this passage seems to actually give us a glimpse into what Elijah has been up to for these years. Remember, part of what sent him into this depression was this expectation that God would, would turn the nation back to himself and that the monarchy would come back to faithfulness to Yahweh. And of course, that never happened. But it seems that what Elijah has done, even in the midst of being an exile, even in the midst of that disappointment, is he's come to embrace God's plan, God's wisdom, and he's come to see that he is called to be faithful. And that he is called to prepare for the future. That he's not going to be there forever. And so he needs to be investing in others who can continue to be faithful witnesses to the word of God even after Elijah's own earthly ministry concludes. And so now on this final day, which Elijah evidently knows is his last day, and it seems like he's communicated that to Elisha and also these sons of the prophets because they know that as well. It seems he has nothing more important to do than travel from place to place to go and visit the men that he has been pouring himself into. Um, and this is just a wonderful picture of the way that we are called to live. Uh, like Elijah, may we invest our lives now in the things that will matter even after we die. I mean, what, what a picture this is, that, that he is living his life in such a way that he knows it's his last day and he has nothing more important to do than to go and visit the very people he's already been investing in. And, and would we live our lives like that? So if it's my last day, it's not, oh, there's all these other things I meant to do, but, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm already investing myself in the things that count for eternity. So if it's my last day, well, I, I can go and just be part of the same kinds of things that I've already been doing. Because all along, I've been living in such a way that I am prepared to die. I am laying up not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. I'm preparing for the things that are going to count in eternity. One specific application, um, think of what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. As, as Paul was aging and he knows that his death is coming soon, he tells his protege Timothy, he says, the things you have heard in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. Right? He wants Timothy to be passing on these things, to pass the torch, so that other men will then be able to pass the torch, and that this faithful witness to the gospel would continue. So let's all be thinking, how can we be part of that? Passing the gospel on to the next generation, investing in others who can invest in others, who can invest in others, because our life, our time here is short. And far greater than, than one solitary Incredible preacher is to have an ongoing overflow of ministry from one person to the next. Um, so let's live lives that are prepared for death. And this brings us to our third and our final point. And it's this. Jesus delivers from death. Now you might hear that and think, wait a second. Why did you say Jesus rather than Yahweh? And we will get to that. Uh, but first, let's take a look at the end of our story. So, picking up in verse 9, Elijah and Elisha have just crossed the Jordan River out into the, the region outside the promised land. And it says in verse 9, When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And this reference to a double portion of your spirit, it seems to be a reference to Elijah's spiritual authority and power to perform miracles. There's no evidence that Elisha had ever worked a miracle up to this point. We don't read anything about the other sons of the prophets working miracles. That seems to be something unique, this spiritual power resting on Elijah himself. And Elisha's requesting that. Verse 10, and Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. I think that's his way of saying, this is not something that's mine to give. But then he says, yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Now, this seems to be the, the test. Are you, if you're with me all the way to the end and you see me taken up, then yes, you will be my successor. The same spirit that has been on me will rest on you. Verse 11, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. Uh, so they're just talking and all of a sudden there's this whirlwind and there's these chariots and horses of fire and they're sort of pushed apart and Elijah is swept up and he goes up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha is looking on and it says, and Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He's looking to his spiritual father being taken away and he calls him the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And I think that's a reference to saying Elijah has been the spiritual strength of the nation. He is the spiritual army of Israel and he's being taken away. And Elisha is deeply grieved. It says, and he saw him no more than he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. This is an expression of grief as he sees Elijah taken away. And then in verse 13, it says, And he took up the cloak of Elijah, or his mantle, that had fallen from him. So as Elijah's going up, his mantle falls off. Elisha takes it up, and he goes back, and he stands on the bank of the Jordan. This man who probably has never worked a miracle up to this point, and he's holding the mantle of Elijah. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he strikes the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So just as Elijah had done, now, meanwhile, there's these 50 sons of the prophets who are watching this. And when they see Elisha come back and strike the water and the waters part, they say, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And then they say to him, behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some high mountain or into some valley. 
Right? They're like, oh, we'll go find him. And, and Elisha's like, no, no, you don't understand. He's, he's taken to heaven. He says, and he said, you shall not send. Don't go. You don't need to go look for him. He's gone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he finally said, send. They sent therefore 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go. So they go and look, and, and basically what this tells us is that you know, Elijah didn't just go elsewhere on earth. He really was taken to heaven. He didn't die. God took him and delivered him from death itself and brought him all the way to heaven. Now, transparently, this passage shows us that Yahweh, unlike Baal, can deliver from death. And isn't it an amazing and beautiful irony that the man Yahweh chooses to deliver from death itself is a man who once prayed, Lord, take my life from me. I want to die. And Yahweh, in the most emphatic of ways, does not answer that prayer uh, and delivers him. But there's another layer to this that I want us to think about. Remember at the beginning I said, this passage shows us that Jesus delivers from death. And, and how is that? Well, first, notice that this whole event is portrayed as Elijah's exodus. Uh, notice first there's this double river crossing. So Elijah and Elisha come and they cross over, and this is analogous to you know, when Moses leads Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. But then remember, after Moses is dead, Joshua comes to lead the people, and it's basically in the same spot, and, and he brings the ark, and the rivers part, the Jordan River parted, and Joshua led the people across on dry ground. And so there's this parallel. Another thing, um, remember, so Elijah is taken up to heaven in this fiery whirlwind. If you think back to the Exodus, remember how God comes and leads the people. There's this pillar of fire, cloud by day, fire by night, through which God leads them. Now, also, notice that like Moses, who died outside the promised land, Elijah crosses over outside the promised land before being translated to heaven. And I think that subtly points to the fact that neither Moses nor Elijah were finally successful in bringing rest to the people of God. In spite of all their efforts, God's people continued to stand in need of a greater salvation and a greater exodus. And in fact, that is something that the prophets themselves emphasize. Um, listen, listen to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 21, uh, where Isaiah begins speaking about the need for a future exodus that will be greater than the one before. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. God says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Right? Don't forget about the exodus. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to drink, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. I mean, God is talking here about how He will send His servant, the servant of the Lord, and He will bring about this new and greater exodus that will be so much greater that people aren't going to talk about the old one anymore. Because it will be altogether greater. And then, when we turn to the New Testament, and we think, okay, how is the work of Jesus portrayed? How is it described? Well, it's described as a new and greater exodus. Jesus is heralded by the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus was born under the law 
to redeem those who are under the law. That is to buy us out of slavery. That's Exodus language. Jesus himself is the true Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we could go on and on to show how Jesus' coming is like this new and greater Exodus. But for today, as we consider not only the connection of Jesus to the Exodus, but more specifically the connection of Jesus to Elijah's translation, I want to focus on one passage in particular. Uh, Think about the transfiguration. So if if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. And in the transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain to pray. And while Jesus begins to pray, it seems Peter, James, and John, they're getting sleepy, they're sort of half awake or falling asleep. And Jesus, meanwhile, is transfigured. And his clothing becomes white and shining and brilliant. And two other figures come and begin talking with Jesus. And who are the two figures? It's Moses and Elijah. Isn't that interesting? We keep seeing Moses and Elijah connected. Well, there they both are at the transfiguration talking with Jesus. And together, I I think that Moses and Elijah seem to represent the prophetic witness of the Old Testament. You know, in a sense, they stand for the law and the prophets. And the interesting thing is Luke actually tells us what they're talking with Jesus about. He says they were speaking of Jesus' departure. And that, that word there in Greek is the word exodus. Jesus' exodus. For which he, was a, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so even as Moses and Elijah recall two great exoduses of old, now they're talking with Jesus about the greater exodus to come. And and this is when Peter sort of wakes up and he sees Moses and Elijah about to go. He's like, oh, this is great. Let's make some tents so they can stay. But he doesn't know what he said. And suddenly a cloud comes and God's voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then they look, and behold, there's only Jesus. Moses and Elijah have faded away into the background, and there stands Jesus, the one who has come with the greater message of salvation to accomplish the greater exodus for God's people. And so what I'm saying is that Elijah's incredible translation to heaven was intended all along by God to foreshadow and anticipate the greater salvation and the greater exodus that he would one day accomplish in Christ. It wasn't just a random miracle that God decided to do on a whim, but it had this special purpose. And even in the very history of the world, God is preparing the way to show us and point us through types and shadows to what Christ would do and accomplish. And in fact, when you look at even the details of what happens in Elijah's translation, I mean, it it almost is like a picture of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. You see, Elijah miraculously passing through the Jordan River is analogous to Jesus passing through the river of death. Remember, he calls his crucifixion his baptism. And then miraculously coming out on the other side of that river, being risen from the dead. And then just as Elijah ascended into heaven while Elisha is looking on until he can see him no longer. Well, so Jesus ascends before his disciples until clouds hide him from their sight. And then just as Elijah's mantle falls off and is taken up by Elisha, you know, so the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Well, Jesus, after his ascension, he pours out his spirit to clothe his people with power from on high. And then finally, just as Elijah's translation to heaven sort of sets the stage for these prophecies that he will one day return, and of course, in spirit, he returns in the person of John the Baptist, uh, so Jesus' ascension gives us the certainty that one day Jesus will return to reign forevermore. 
And friends, the good news is that Jesus has already accomplished this greater exodus on behalf of his people through his work on the cross. And unlike Moses and Elijah, who both ended their ministries outside the promised land, Jesus has conquered death itself through his resurrection, and he will one day return to transform this entire world into the lasting promised land to give true rest for his people forever. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to the close of our study on the life of Elijah, I hope you see here something of the wisdom and the providence of God in the way Scripture ties so intricately together. I hope you can see that even, you know, that this Old Testament account written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born pointed clearly to him. And I also hope that we will all come to terms with the reality that outside of Christ, there is no hope in death. No idol can can give us hope to face death. It will only bring the certain and fearful reality of judgment. But in Christ, we have a steadfast hope. And in Christ, we have one who can say, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And what a wonderful image. He has the keys of death itself. And Jesus also says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, whoever trusts in Christ has that hope because he has borne all our sins on the cross. And if we have that hope, then like Elijah, Let's not live for this world. Let's live lives that are prepared for death, investing our lives in what will matter for eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the hope we have in Christ. That he has conquered sin and death, that he is risen and he is ascended to your right hand that in Him we have an eternal and lasting hope uh, that even death itself cannot take away. God, we pray that You would strengthen us to live uh, for eternity now, uh, to know that our time on earth is short. May we invest it well for Your kingdom and for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.